Please be seated. And as you take your seat, you can open with me and your copy of the Word of God to Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14. If you'd like to follow along inside of your bulletin, you can also do that. We've been in a series of messages for about a year now in the book of Romans, and we find ourselves nearing the end of the book in chapter 14 this morning. If you remember, chapters 12 and 13 emphasize the importance of love, both to our neighbors, fellow believers, and even our enemies. And Paul supplies a lengthy example now of what it means to walk according to love. There are two groups that Paul has in mind throughout Romans chapter 14. We call them the weak and the strong. Now, it's important in referring to the weakness of the person that Paul is not speaking of the weak will or weak character, but of their faith, weakness in faith. What Paul speaks of when he mentions the weaker brother or sister here is not referring to someone who is easily overcome by temptation, but a believer full of indecision and scruples. A man or a woman, a young person perhaps, trying to find their way, especially with regard to gray areas. The Bible does not address everything that we do in life. There are some things that are explicit. There are other things that are more implicit. And we have to search the scriptures. And as our confession says, by good and necessary inference, we seek to develop godly opinions about those disputable or gray areas in life. And so the weak lack not the strength of self-control, but the liberty of conscience. Now we also have to ask, who exactly were the weak and the strong in the Roman church? The context suggests the weak were some Jewish Christians, whose weakness probably included their continuing commitment to Jewish regulations regarding diet and days. As for diet... They would have kept the Old Testament food laws, eating only clean items. And they would assure themselves that their meat was kosher, that is, that it was prepared properly. Or, if they didn't know that for certain, they would abstain from eating the particular meat. As for special days, they would have observed both the Sabbath and Jewish festivals. So Paul's conciliatory attitude to the weak that is, not allowing the strong to despise or condemn them, is consistent with the Jerusalem Council's decree. You remember in Romans, or excuse me, in Acts chapter 15, uh, there was a council at Jerusalem because there was some controversy in the churches and the apostles had to deal with it. And the essence of those decrees that were issued were designated to restrain the strong and safeguard the consciences of the weak. You remember that the Jerusalem Council decree made it clear that circumcision was not necessary for salvation. That was first and foremost on the agenda. And subordinate to that, it gave Jewish Christians the freedom to continue their distinctive cultural ceremonial practices. And at the same time, it asked Gentile Christians in certain circumstances to abstain from practices that would offend sensitive Jewish Christian consciences. You remember the four things that they mentioned. They said, we write to you and tell you to avoid eating meat sacrificed to idols, to abstain from blood and from things strangled, 
also known as things that are non-kosher, and to restrain from sexual immorality. Now, to be sure, there was some overlap between these groups. In other words, the text doesn't allow us to make a neat equation such as this. The weak were only the Jewish Christians, and the strong were only Gentile Christians. No, there were probably some who were weak who were Gentiles, and some who were stronger who were Jews, some who had grasped the faith. But it's important to understand that Paul is saying that from a gospel perspective, questions of diet and days make up what we call non-essentials. Issues and items that are not at the heart of the Christian faith. I believe it was Augustine, Bishop of Hippolytus in North Africa, the great 4th century Christian, a theologian, and pastor, and scholar, who said, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. And that's a great, great statement, a great aphorism of the Christian life. And so for Paul, it was necessary to distinguish essentials from non-essentials to the Christian faith. And we would be wise to follow his example. We must not elevate non-essentials, especially issues of custom and ceremony, to the level of the essential and make them tests of orthodoxy and conditions of fellowship. I grew up in a tradition that said, if you were not baptized by immersion, you weren't biblically baptized. Well, that's a distortion of the biblical truth because baptizo, the Greek word, can mean immerse, it can mean sprinkle, it can mean pour. It can mean a variety of things. And the mode of baptism is not an essential item of the faith. We may say that baptism is essential, but even there, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 1, when he came to Corinth, everybody was saying, I was baptized by so-and-so, and I was baptized by so-and-so. And Paul said, wait a minute, Christ didn't send me to baptize. He sent me to preach the gospel. Now, Paul wasn't minimizing baptism that much. He was saying, in essence, there was a priority over baptism, and that is getting the gospel out. It doesn't really matter who baptized you. You guys are majoring on the minors here, and you can get in trouble when you do that. And so we need to be careful not to erase non-essentials to essentials. And on the other hand, we must take care that we don't minimize fundamental theological doctrine or moral questions as if they were only cultural or unimportant. Again, Paul distinguishes between things. So should we. And that's one thing that we're not finding in our culture these days. There are churches that take essential doctrines and make them non-essential. And even on matters of morality where the Bible is explicitly clear, there's ambiguity, apparently, in some people's minds. And it's a departure from church history and the clear hammering out of apostolic doctrine for 2,000 years now. Take care. And one final introductory note. This passage demonstrates Paul's remarkable blend of theology and ethics. He treats some very mundane matters, yet he grounds them in truths of the cross, the resurrection, and the second coming of Christ and final judgment. Griffin Thomas entitled his exposition of Romans 14, High Doctrines for Humble Duties. High Doctrines for Humble Duties. And I think that's a good way to summarize this. I want you to notice uh, three things this morning. I'm going to have points and sub-points. So if you're taking notes, uh, by all means, uh, be busy. 
Or as that famous and infamous theologian Betty Davis said in her movie The Other Night, All About Eve, fasten your seatbelts. We're in for a bumpy ride. <laughs> First point, we should welcome one another without judging or showing contempt over non-essential matters. We should judge or we should welcome one another without judging or showing contempt over non-essential matters. And we see that in verses 1 through 12. Now, first of all, I want you to notice the principle. Look at verse 1. Paul says, Now accept the one who is weak in the faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. That is the principle. And then Paul gives basically three reasons in support of that principle in verses 2 through 12. The first reason is this, because God has accepted you. Or God has accepted all of us. He says in verse 2, One man has faith that he may eat all things. Another who is weak eats vegetables only. Let him who eats, let him not regard him who eats, regard him with contempt. Let me back up. Let not him who eats regard with contempt him who does not eat. And let not him who does not eat judge him who does eat. For God has accepted him. There's just no place for contempt or judgmentalism over non-essential items in the body of Christ. And you'll notice Paul's, uh, he, he drives his point home with a striking question in verse 4. Who are you to judge the servant of another? When we judge or show contempt for one another over non-essential matters, we automatically assume the position of judge and Lord over them. In other words, we're taking God's place. And why? Because we're going beyond what is written. Remember Paul said that in 1 Corinthians 4, 6. He told the Corinthians, don't go beyond what is written. There are some things that are more mysterious. There are some things that are gray areas. There are some things that are more ambiguous in the Bible in regard to Christian conduct. But what is stated is there clearly for all. And so Paul is saying, when it comes to non-essential, disputable matters, typically you're going to go beyond what is written in your zeal, perhaps, to correct a fellow believer. Take care at that point and humble yourself. Remember, God has accepted that weaker brother or sister just as he has accepted you. And because of that acceptance, we must speak God's word and challenge one another toward godly behavior, but not when it comes to disputable matters, unless that person asks your opinion. You know, it's very important to wait until somebody asks your opinion. John, I'm struggling through this or that, and I'm not sure what to do. The Bible says this, the Bible says that. I'm willing to give my opinion at that point, not dogmatically, but to try to help that brother or sister along in the development of their faith as they hammer out their particular opinions. And so we need to remember that God has accepted us whether I'm strong, whether I'm knowledgeable of the Christian faith, or whether I'm brand new to it, we both stand equal at the foot of the cross. We must remember that all of us have fallible, sinful minds, and yet God has accepted us in Christ Jesus despite the many things we get wrong. There's no place for pride. Sometimes we can demonstrate that, especially as Presbyterians, as if everybody else is wrong about everything. No, you can learn a lot from other traditions. A lot of things that we don't know, things that we have not considered. And so essentially he's saying exercise humility toward one another. Paul is in essence saying give your brother or sister a break because somebody has given you a break. 
You didn't come into the kingdom because of all your opinions and that they were accurate and right. No, we have things wrong and we will always have things wrong and get things wrong. And so we need to humble ourselves before each other. So God has accepted all of us at that point as believers. Then secondly, because of our common objective to please the Lord. Look at verses 5 through 9. Paul calls for serious reflection and firm conviction. It's a reminder that we all should interact with the scriptures as we develop and correct our convictions and opinions. Verse 5, he says, One man regards one day above another. Another man regards every day alike. Let each man be fully convinced in his own mind. In other words, Paul is not calling for superficiality. He wants us to be mindful of what we believe and to hash it out in the scriptures. Paul continues by pointing out the objective of both the weak and the strong, and that is to please the Lord, according to verse 6. Verses 7 and 8, he hammers it out. Our common objective is the result of our belonging to the Lord. Whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's, and we don't live or die for ourselves. You know, too often when we have a strong opinion about a disputable matter, we're promoting ourselves more than we are Christ. And we're seeking the welfare of ourself and maybe satisfying some insecurity in ourself rather than promoting the security and the strength and the development of a fellow believer. While we continue to live on earth and when we begin life in heaven, through death, we belong to Jesus Christ and we exist for his glory and his honor. Now you'll notice in verse 9, Paul clarifies that Christ's ownership and dominion over us is rooted in his crucifixion and resurrection. Look at verse 9. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Paul lifts the very mundane question of our mutual relationships in the Christian community to the high theological level of death, resurrection, and consequential universal lordship of Christ. I think that's lovely. How we get along is not a small matter. We can let small matters mess up our fellowship. Or we can make very big our treatment of one another. And the fact that relationships are important. That's what one of the teachings of Psalm 127 is. We read that the Psalm this morning. It has a wealth of wisdom. Diane and I were studying a... a, a um, Oh, the word slips my mind. A devotional the other day by Reggie Kidd as he uh, exposited that passage. You know, it doesn't just relate to having physical children. The writer says, unless the Lord builds the house, they that labor, labor in vain. Unless the Lord guards the city, you can work yourself to death and still not be working in the power of God's Spirit and living according to His objectives. And then he stops and he says, children are a gift from the Lord. In other words, relationships are essential. The one who has a quiverful is blessed by God. That doesn't mean just literal children. It means that in the body of Christ, we have children, spiritual children that we may have led to Christ, that we disciple. Brothers and sisters, grandparents, that sort of thing. Our lives are intertwined, and the psalmist is saying, don't work yourself to death for that which perishes. Invest in relationships. And understand that how we treat one another is how we treat Christ. That's exactly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians in the chapter devoted to Christian liberty. And so in summary, we must remember 
this before we judge or show contempt for others concerning non-essential matters. Paul is instructing us to remember our shared objective, that we're supposed to be living for Christ and dying to ourselves. And ladies and gentlemen, all of us are striving, or we should be. All of us should be humble. All of us should be asking questions. All of us should listen to one another. And all of us should take care as to what we say, not out of arrogance, but out of humility. Now notice Paul gives a third reason in connection to this about not judging or showing contempt over non-essential matters. He says, because we all must give an account to God. Look at verses 10 through 12. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God. Our divine accountability to God renders earthly conformity unless, or renders useless earthly conformity concerning non-essential views and opinions and practices. In essence, Paul says, judging or showing contempt for one another is futile because the Lord is the ultimate judge to whom we all must be accountable to. I think whenever we lose sight of that, it makes us more critical. It makes us put the magnifying glass on our brothers and sisters in Christ. When we lose sight of the fact that we must all give an account before the Lord in terms of where we're at spiritually, who we belong to, and what we're doing in the body of Christ. It's a humbling thing. A humbling thing. The other day I was standing outside and I have a lady in my neighborhood who I know the Lord has placed in my life. And every time I'm mowing the yard, she comes by. And she starts telling me how to dispose of my leaves and other debris in the yard. And I get irritated. I mean, I, I have things that come to my mind that I want to say, and I know I shouldn't. I know I shouldn't. But then I realize, what if? What if you didn't get offended? What if you realized in that moment what you should be realizing all the time, that you're surrounded by people who may not know the Lord? And what if you responded to the only overture of a neighbor when they wanted to correct you? What if you responded with humility and kindness? What if you walked up and said, I'm sorry, I didn't, I didn't realize I was doing that or uh, I shouldn't have been doing that. What's your name, by the way? It was a humbling moment. A humbling moment. You need to take time to stop and realize that the Lord is at work, even over silly things like that, where you stuff your leaves in the neighborhood. It may be an opportunity for the gospel to be spoken. Well, Paul says, first of all, we should welcome one another without judging or showing contempt over non-essential matters. Because of God's acceptance of us, because of our common objective to please the Lord, and because we all must give an account to God. Now, the second thing he says is in verses 13 through 18, and that is this. We should welcome one another by striving to avoid putting stumbling blocks or obstacles in each other's way. And we see that in verses 13 through 18. You see the principle in verse 13. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. What is an, a stumbling block or an obstacle? Well, it's any behavior that retards or leads to destructive consequences in the growth and the development of other believers. It tears down. It doesn't build up. And we should be as motivated to avoid placing stumbling blocks in the path of others as we are to practice our liberty. You see, rights and liberty, we enjoy those rights more than any other people on the face of the planet. 
We have a Bill of Rights. Americans are all about their rights. And that runs into a head-on collision with Christianity because Christianity says you lose your rights. The only rights you have are to obey and submit to Christ. You take up your cross and deny yourself your freedoms and liberties, for the most part, in your pursuit of God's glory. And so we have to be discerning. We enjoy the United States. We enjoy the freedoms that we've been given. But we need to be discerning that we're first and foremost Christians, not citizens of the United States. That's subordinate to our status as Christians. And so Paul says, let's, let's do something positive here. Let's determine not to put a stumbling block in each other's way. Now he gives three applications in support of this principle. Number one, let your knowledge be conditioned by your love. Let your knowledge be conditioned by your love. And he says that in verses 14 and 15. Paul goes very personal here. He says, I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in and of itself. But to him who thinks anything is unclean, to him it is unclean. Paul was probably reflecting on the words of Jesus. You know, God made certain foods clean and others unclean for the specific purpose of identifying and marking out his people Israel. But when Christ came and the dawn of the new covenant and the gospel went beyond the borders of Israel to the Gentiles, Jesus in one place declared all foods clean. There was a historical transition taking place from the old covenant to the new, from Jews being God's people alone to Jews and Gentiles. And so Paul, with that knowledge, made this comment. I know nothing is unclean in and of itself, but you'll notice the flip side of that, verse 15. Or excuse me, the outer part of verse 14. But to him who thinks anything is unclean, to him it is unclean. Paul shows how unclean is now according to the eye of the beholder. Paul is saying you might be right technically, but wrong with reference to love. I read a great quote this past week by John Stott. Listen to this. Love limits its liberty out of respect for others who might be offended. Love limits its liberty out of respect for others who might be offended. Perhaps you're convinced in your own mind that for you to have a drink or for you to go to a movie, or for you to do something on a Sunday that others would certainly not do. Maybe you do have that right. But if you don't practice that right or that conviction with love, then you will not care who you offend. And if we truly love each other, and we treat each other as we treat Christ, then we've got to take care with that liberty. If we prioritize our liberty over loving one another, we are in the wrong. We've got to watch ourselves at that point. Remember Paul said, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. I've served churches where I've had people that come up and make it a standard of righteousness as to how you educate your children. You know, the Bible is encouraging education of children, but it doesn't say specifically public education or private education or homeschooling. And that should never become an essential to fellowship. We've got to be careful at that point. Paul says, let your knowledge be conditioned by your love. Then he says, secondly, another application, be wise and discerning in the practice of your liberty. Look at verse 16. Therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. In other words, use discernment and wisdom in connection to your liberty. The Bible doesn't condemn movies. 
But you know as well as I do, there's a continuum on what is acceptable. For some movies, that's why they have ratings. And some Christians need to think through that clearly about the movie that I go to or the movie that I watch. Am I causing somebody else to stumble? Be wise and discerning in the practice of your liberty. The Bible doesn't condemn dancing. In fact, I was raised in a tradition where there was condemnation of that sort of thing. If you go to the Old Testament in the Psalms, there's dancing all over the place. But there's a continuum on what kind of dancing is done. And that's where wisdom comes in and discernment about what my opinion might be about that particular issue. Be wise and discerning in the practice of your liberty. Thirdly, keep the priority of the kingdom of God. Look at verses 17 and 18. For the kingdom of God is not in eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. Paul reminds us of the relative insignificance of our liberty in comparison to the overarching liberty as citizens of the kingdom of God. If I'm so focused, to put it another way, on my right to eat or drink what I want when I want or to go where I want to go regardless of what anybody might think, then perhaps I've lost sight of God's ultimate liberation and liberty in my life. He has liberated me from the darkness of my sin in saving me. He's brought me into his perfect righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. From a life of confusion and anxiety and distress to a life of peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. You see what Paul is saying? If you're looking only at your liberty and trying to judge through your life what I can do and cannot do, you're losing sight of the bigger overarching liberty. And that is God's liberation of you from your sins and from the penalty of sin in the gospel of the Lord Jesus and by his grace. Paul says the kingdom of God is much bigger than our opinions about non-essential, disputable matters. A third thing that Paul brings out here, we should welcome one another by pursuing things which make for peace and the building up of one another in verses 19 through 23. You see the principle spelled out in verse 19. Let us pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Now here he doesn't give uh, reasons to support the principle. He doesn't give applications in support of the principle. He basically has questions. They don't come in the form of a question, but these things that Paul says beg the questions that we need to ask, and there are three of them. First of all, is the practice of my liberty destructive? Look at verse 20. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things are indeed clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. Is the practice of my liberty, whatever it might be, destructive in any way to someone else? A second question, is my liberty more important than the welfare of others? Look at Paul in verse 21. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. In other words, take care. Don't be so concerned about your liberties that you lose sight of the welfare of others. And then I think the most important one here, verses 22 and 23, is my liberty yielding a clear conscience? Is my liberty yielding a clear conscience? Paul tells us to enjoy our liberties in Christ. Look at verse 22. The faith of which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. 
But in verse 23, he tells us, basically, follow your conscience regarding disputable, ambiguous matters and activities. When he says, he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith, and whatever is not from faith is sin. Doubt is the opposite of faith. The Holy Spirit lives inside of us, and he guides me concerning gray areas. And when all else fails, and I don't have an opinion or help from somebody else, and I cannot discern which way the Scripture is pointing, then I trust that the Spirit of God, that enlightened my conscience, will give me a sense of direction. On the other hand, I could tell myself that a particular practice does not violate God's Word, but it's best to abstain if I can't engage in the activity with a clear conscience. Maybe you have something like that in your own life. Paul told Timothy over and over again, keep a clear conscience. And the reason he did that was because there are going to be a lot of things that come to our lives where we may not have explicit instructions, but we know that the Spirit of God is working inside of us to lead us in one direction or the other. One of Martin Luther's famous speeches, he said, to violate conscience is neither right nor safe. And if Christ has cleansed your conscience from dead works to serve a living God, then that conscience will be alive in you. And it will restrain you in some respects, and other times it will enable you to participate in things to demonstrate Christ's liberation of your life. Let's take care to treat one another with respect and love and build each other up in the faith as we live out our lives to Christ's glory. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for all the Apostle Paul said. It truly is a mouthful. We ask, Lord, that your spirit would lead and guide us in these things. Lord, help us, like Ecclesiastes says, to take hold of one thing and not let go of the other. Help us, Lord, to live with tensions. Help us not to have to have every question answered. Some questions will not be answered except in the quietness of the moment when your spirit moves in our conscience. Help us, Lord, to that end. Bless us now, and I pray that if we don't know you, any of us, that we would come to faith in Christ today and that we would all grow up to the full measure and stature of Christ as we seek to encourage each other to love and good deeds in the future. We ask all of these things, confidently expectant of them, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.